This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Equalizer podcast. I'm Chelsea Bush. Special guest today, our illustrious Equalizer founder, <laughs> that's Jeff Pasuk. <laughs> special guest. <laughs> yes, very special. <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, we kicked Dan off for the week. So. Yes, forcefully. Yeah. And we're here to talk about Jill Ellis, I think, right? Yeah, I guess I guess Jill uh she's she's the person of the hour of the week, so um yeah, I think I think a lot of Jill and then um as ever who's uh with a, in our what have you done for me lately world, I guess. Jill and then who's replacing Jill? That's what everybody wants to know. Yeah, it's the question of the week day month whatever it is whatever moment it is until we get it yeah but at least i will say this at least we know it's not going to take as long as the men's coach because we have the olympics so we know it's not going to take a year yes that's uh (laughs) i guess that's good news yeah i mean hopefully it um i'm a little skeptical just i mean I, i guess i'm always skeptical of anything that we're like told is definitive, especially when it's a U.S. soccer timeline, whether that's an injured player or a hire. Because um, that GM, remember, I mean, Kate Markraft, you know, they said they wanted to wait till after the World Cup, but that was originally supposed to be done by February, um, you know, and that became August. So uh, I don't, like you said, it's not going to be that long, but, you know, even the idea that it'll definitely be sorted by the end of October or so, I mean, you think so, but you just never know. Yeah. Well, before we get to that, I guess maybe we should pay our respects to the uh, the outgoing coach, the the winningest coach of all time in U.S. soccer history, right? Um, yeah. Jill, man, I, I don't know. I'm trying to. I think back to like, obviously Sermani was a little different, but Pia and and, and Tony and some of the the longer lasting ones. I'm trying to remember if there's been an outgoing coach that was this divisive especially when you consider the success success she had because like Mm -hmm. up until she won that second world cup, I mean, a lot of people didn't like Jill Ellis. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to me kind of how just winning, even though she won one to begin with, how the narrative is kind of flipped on her. Well, you know what I think is interesting is, is she is, um, you know, Sermani, obviously it was brief, um, relatively brief to, to the rest of the coaches and, you know, would be in that era and, the Pia era kind of stretches into this, but I think it's interesting that maybe we say that too, because, um, you know, we're talking five years here for Jill Ellis and, and that's really, uh, really in kind of the heart and the, the rise of this hyper digital social media age. So, um, you know, I wonder, I mean, the, you talk about divisive and, and things. I mean, the, the latest one from that would probably be, I mean, Pia had detractors too, right? But I mean, I, I think, um, you know, just a different yeah, kind of era. Sure. And, um, you know, I wonder what, like, how people would have analyzed Pia's tactics and everything. In, in I mean, Twitter was around at the end of her 
tenure, but um, you know, I, I think yeah, and I think one of the well, honestly, I think one of the biggest attractions about Jill was kind of her handling of some of the veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, we know how much power they have on the team. They're they're also usually the more popular players because they've been around forever. And Pia pretty much had her core group and kind of stuck with it. So I think that particular right. aspect of it, she she's gonna kind of you know get a, get a little bit of leeway. But I also remember Pia being um, criticized for not switching things up enough. So you, it's like mm-hmm. you can't win sometimes. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I think Pia, I mean, the, the biggest criticism Pia was that she just like wouldn't, she was really rigid with things. And then like, I mean, I think the big thing was like, she wasn't, she refused to play like a holding mid when it looked like they needed one. And then they lost in Mexico and had to go into that playoff. And um, that was kind of, I think that was a big thing with her too, was just kind of the, I, I know, I know U.S. soccer argues this point because she called up however many people, but there was a, a feeling that she did not give a lot of opportunities outside of that group she had already. Yeah, well, we can't say at the very least that Jill didn't call up a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you look at that the starting lineup and say, you know, the World Cup final, and you look at the players, you know, that she she was the one who, who brought them in. And, and basically, you know, she gave Alyssa Nair. She wasn't the one who called Nair, but she gave her her first cap. Yeah. And people, I think, tend to forget that. The Nair was around forever, but didn't play until the very tail end of 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dahl Kemper, Rose Lavelle. Uh, I was going to say Sam Mewis, but that's not correct. I think Sermani gave her her first cap. Mm-hmm. But yeah. players like, I will say players like Mewis and, and Lindsay Horan, who maybe they didn't get their first cap under her, but really their rise was under her. They got looked by right. Sermani and they kind of ignored for a little while. And um, so, I, yeah, I, I think that the Jill definitely molded the team, you know, as the way she wanted, particularly after that first world cup when i think you know that when she kind of was given this group and said here's here's what you're going to have go win it and then we'll you know then you can kind of do what you want right. and I, sometimes i've kind of wondered if that's what led to maybe her biggest the biggest black mark on her record which is the olympics loss mm-hmm. and maybe she tried to do too much too soon that's kind of the way I, I always looked at it you know for instance i thought that the ali long wasn't ready for the role she was given i didn't think that that mallory Pugh was ready for um, as many minutes as, as she was giving, and, and I think she she tinkered a little bit too much with mm-hmm. the defense and playing those, particularly playing, playing those fullbacks so aggressively and just leaving mm-hmm. the, the back line really wide open. So, and that was honestly when when Jill um, said she was leaving, that's I was kind of surprised that maybe she didn't want to give the Olympics one more go, go and see if, <laughs> if yeah. she could maybe do a little bit better this time, maybe not win but medal, but also. I mean, like you're going out on back-to-back World Cup wins. You can't go out better than that, you know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, you know, from from talking to her through the years and, and about those Olympics too, I think she viewed them as, you know, I'm sort of uh, paraphrasing, but like she said, it's not that they are experimental grounds, but they are a place to maybe try some younger players. Um, you still try to win, but but you try to, you know, you don't do that in a World Cup, essentially, was her message, because that is the absolute mecca of a tournament that you need to win. But, you know, in an Olympics, maybe you bring a Pew, even if she's not quite ready. Maybe that's not the best example. But, you know, a player, you know, if this was an Olympics, um, if it was this year and, and you know, uh, any other sort of player that um, on the younger side that she may want to test out. So I think if you I would assume that her view would kind of hold for that if she were around for next year. And then, you know, to, to your point, then that's, well, it's kind of more experimental for a future that she knows isn't going to be hers. And then also, you know, if it's a going out on top thing and the winning is, 
you know, part of the equation and not the whole thing, then, um, you know, maybe it makes it a bit, a bit more awkward for her, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny to, to your point, I mean, to think about kind of the different, um, eras and, uh, cause there's like little eras within this Jill Ellis era, which is, you know, straight from taking over for, as an, as kind of an interim coach and, and sort of in this stopgap situation and players literally said, we just need a, person to guide the ship we're good here <laughs> we got all the people we need we just want someone to manage us um then you had the three back and the you know obviously the olympics that we talked about so um i think this could have ended any number of ways for ellis and and the fact that you know she persevered to the point that she had the world cup to go win was you know something in itself yeah i, I mean for me, I think the biggest thing that stands out about Jill Ellis is the fact that she really had some some downs, the Olympic loss, the free back the experiment gone wrong, um, you know, kind of a little bit of a player's revolt there in, in 2017. This, to me, she seemed on the verge of kind of losing that locker room, and we all know that that's, that, all know that that's, that's a death mm-hmm. knell for any coach. And the fact that she came back from that and went on to win another World Cup, to me, it, it speaks a lot to to her and, and to the players as well, but to her as right. a manager, as, as a player manager. And that sometimes I wonder if that if being more of a player manager, not so much a tactical manager is, is more important when, especially when it comes to the U S soccer team, where mm-hmm. there are a lot of very strong presences, very strong personality and a lot of strong voices in that locker room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think the, it's a huge point that you make. It's a great point. I mean, the, the idea of kind of the, the, I think we only get a taste of it too, right? The the stuff that's like the player revolt and some of the some of the relations there. Um, I, I think we only get a taste of, you know, what they're what they're kind of doing and going through day to day. So um, I think it's. I said this to somebody the other day or week, and like I think the one thing that fans should know, especially if they're kind of newer, like haven't they haven't played. I mean, I think like players kind of never love a coach. I mean, and if they do, then that might not be a good thing, but it's just a matter of a respect level and um, just kind of everybody doing their thing and and whether it works or not um, is ultimately how you kind of judge it. So, I mean, there's always kind of a mild discontent in any team because you have 18, 20 some players that, you know, everybody thinks they should be a starter and yada, yada. So, I mean, you'll see that straight down to a high school college level, but um, the idea that at this level, you know, where everybody is, everybody on that roster is world-class, that there can be, um, the problems that we've heard about that have been reported about, and then still, um, you know, persevere as they did win a world cup. I think that speaks to coach and players that, that there's a professionalism. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's kind of just like any other thing. We don't, we're not going to, you're going to hear reports about, oh, everyone loves each other. You're only going to hear reports about the negative things. So mm-hmm. I think it's easy to say, well, yeah, we, we heard these reports of our players revolt, but that went away, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, I think at that point you have to assume that something, whatever it was worked out. And, you know, I, speaking on a tactical side, I sometimes, I think that maybe Jill's vision was stronger than maybe her ability to implement it. And then sometimes I, I think she relied on players that she liked that couldn't, weren't really a good fit and I mean I think the biggest example of that would be Ali Long and the three back the three back in and of itself is not a bad formation and Ali Long is not a bad soccer player 
it just wasn't the good the right fit and she was kind of a, a square peg in a round hole situation um so for me if I look at Jill Ellis as a coach that's kind of my biggest detraction is is that sort of aspect of it but you know ultimately she was able to and she's always going to be you know she's going to be criticized for oh you left Crystal Dunn off this roster and you left Casey Short <laughs> off this roster and she went on to win both Right. You know, should maybe they should have been on there? Yes or no? You know, I'm sure we get that's a, another debate for another time. Um, but at the end of the day, she made the right decisions, put the right eleven on the field. Um, I still her substitution patterns will always continue to to be bizarre. To me. <laughs> that's just something I'm never gonna quite to quite get or lack of substitution sometimes. But she did manage to get the results in the end, and I kind of wonder if. When we're a little bit more removed, maybe it'll be easier to kind of, it's, it's hard to judge someone when you're in it. And I kind of wonder yeah. if down the road, if, if we're going to look at her maybe a little bit more favorably. Yeah, it's very true. I, I think, you know, if we're talking 10 years from now, maybe even five, I mean, whatever it is, you know, uh, you sort of get in that, that realm of history where it was long enough ago that it, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the bigger picture stuff. And, uh, you know, I think, I don't know that we'll we'll necessarily maybe it'd be a, a touch point a flashpoint to say hey there was you know player dis you know unrest and um, but but I think if you had if you had one sentence to say all right what did she do well, she won two World Cups <laughs> so yeah that's that's a pretty good summation um, I think I speak for everyone at Equalizer when I, I say we all wish Jill the best of luck and whatever it is she she goes to do after this I'm assuming that's probably just like a really long vacation. And probably really <laughs> well-deserved. All right, yeah. when we come back, we will talk about who we think might possibly fill some very large shoes there. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. Before we jump back into it, I want to give our fbref.com stat of the week. That's fbref.com. Go see them for all your soccer stats women's soccer, men's soccer, all the soccer. And that is, of course, Jill Ellis uh, is now the winningest coach in U.S. soccer history. She surpassed Tony DiCicco last Thursday with their win. Now she's leaving with an overall record of 106-7-19. That's pretty astonishing to me, seven losses in five years. She's the first coach in history to win back-to-back Women's World Cups. I believe there's only one coach on the men's side who did that, and that was, like, decades and decades ago. 1930s. 1930s, yeah. So, like, our grandparents, <laughs> like, way long ago. And she also has coached the most U.S. women's national team games with 132. So, thank you, Jill Ellis. This is brought to you by FBRef.com. Now, as I said earlier, we, we've said we've talked about Jill. We've said our goodbyes. Now it's kind of time to turn the page and look to the future and unfortunately we we don't know who that is next we've we've heard a lot of names tossed around um we could probably all, all give our guesses but we don't know who it is mm-hmm. but they have i would say a tall task in front of them you know you, you talked about how jill kind of viewed the olympics as maybe a little bit more of an experimental thing and i i agree but also think that the american public u.s soccer they expect to to do well at the olympics and i think given that we didn't do so well last time they're, they're going to want to put on a good show and you're the reigning world champions and i'm not saying that they expect to win but i think that this coach is going to be expected to do well and honestly i wouldn't be surprised if they were only given maybe a, a short 
initial contract, like a year, kind of like Jill Jill herself did with, with that World Cup. And then mm-hmm. if they do well, kind of go from there. But that's just my, my gut feeling. Well, I think that's that's going to be interesting, right? Because I think the, you know, I've picked up things here and there in terms of, of what's expected of the job, where, where, you know, we've seen, and you and I were talking about this off air here about people pulling their names out. And, um, you know, part of this, and, and it goes back to that conversation about college coaches and stability and what they have already. And I mean, if, you know, same for you or I, I mean, you or I are at, say we're at a job we love, uh, uh, you know, a place that we're full time, we've been here a while, and someone is essentially coming, whether it's the best job in the world for our field or not, and they come and say, well, you know, we're starting this with a one-year contract. We don't know that's the case, but like, if it is, that's, you know, you're going to uproot your whole life and walk away from something you can't walk back to. Um, you know, I think that that's one of the major factors to, to understand, um, you know, I don't know, because that, I think that could take a lot of good candidates and say, yeah, you can have that job as good as it is for, you know, one year. And if I don't go in the Olympics, I'm back on the street looking for another gig. So, um, you know, that's, that's the reality of coaching the best team in the world. But, um, I think if that's, if it's one of the, you know, potential stumbling points, it's a big one because, you know, the, the, couple candidates that we know have been mentioned publicly are in pretty good situations in the NWSL with, with Laura Harvey, Vlako Anonofsky. Um, there's other candidates as far as we know, but you know, anybody really, I mean, um, I think there's a lot. And one thing that I do know is, and, and had heard this and U S soccer confirmed is they expect the coach to live in Chicago. So, you know, again, that's kind of an uprooting thing and it's an awkward one too, because it's, you know, moving yourself and maybe a family to Chicago, but, um, you're not like your work isn't really there. Like you, you kind of assemble every six to eight weeks, maybe with a team and you're probably doing it in LA or Miami anyway. So, um, I think that there are probably little negatives or, or talking points that we don't always see on the surface level that might, that'll be interesting in this process. That's kind of, you know, chugging along. Yeah, and I mean, even if it isn't a one-year contract, even if it's your standard, you know, through the next cycle, there's still not that much stability. If you don't perform well, mm-hmm. if you make enough players, strong players, unhappy, I mean, we, we've seen that with multiple coaches. And I, I mean, Sermani is the, the most recent and probably the biggest example of someone who I, I think is actually a pretty good coach and probably kind of got a raw deal and, and should be given a little bit of credit for putting things in the play that led to success after he was gone. Um, but yeah, if, if you don't aren't up to snuff by whoever's judging that, you, you could be out the door. I mean, mm-hmm. we saw you know on the men's side millions of dollars to Jurgen Klinsmann pay out because his contract wasn't. Over. I was uh, yeah, I was gonna say you got to get the Klinsmann deal is how you have to set it up. So well, you make yeah, sure that's paid no matter what. Could go into it the topic of equal pay for the coach as well, but that's probably neither here nor there. But yeah, <laughs> so I mean, that's, I'm saying U.S. soccer is not adverse to shooting themselves in the foot a little bit to to get rid of someone that they don't want or the players don't want somebody in power doesn't want so yeah it's it's hard I mean especially I think for I think the college thing is a little bit more secure than even like professional obviously you still have any coach anywhere has the expectation to to deliver but you know 
if, if you do well enough, you can be at a college program your entire career. I mean, you look at Anson Dorrance at North Carolina, who's, who's been there like since I've been alive. Um, <laughs> you look at G. Guerri at Texas A&M, who's the only coach they've ever had for over, over 20 years now. The only coach that program's ever had. Um, and so, yeah, you see coaches who spend their entire careers or close to decades at a college and they're very, very good coaches. But the longer you spend there, you start, like you talked about, you have a family there. You, you put down roots in that community. Yeah. That's, that's hard to give up. Even if I, I would, I still think I, I would say that the U S women's national team head coach is probably the pinnacle of coaching in women's soccer. It's the most successful team in history. It's consistently ranked number one. Like, I don't think you're going to get much better than that, but it's got to be highly stressful, right? Like, it can't be a lot of fun sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, look, and I agree on, you know, I think think we often, especially folks in position like ourselves who are, like, forced to analyze every time there's even a useless game like the one they just played um, and have, you know, have an opinion on it and everything else. And, like, it's easy to forget that uh, we cover people and um, people do things for, you know, reasons that um, – I don't want to say that we don't understand, but we just don't – we don't know from just watching them on TV. And I think, you know, certainly things like families and locations and everything like that are – um, you know, I'm sure there's people who are like rolling their eyes and they're like hardcore sports fans, like, ah, come on, this is the best job. This is if they don't want it, you know, but um, th- these are real factors. So um, I think those are things that we can kind of forget. And, and you know, most, I would say most serious candidates, that is something that is dealt with, you know, if, if they're in the game, you know, if they're still in the sort of process um, as a finalist or something, they've probably already dealt with that sort of potential question within their, their own camp, their own house. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a factor. So, um, I don't know. I'm curious to see, I think it's, uh, it's a really interesting time. It's a short window to the Olympics, as we've said, and then, you know, I mean, you have to have some kind of understanding too. I think there's, there's a lot. The one thing I should say too, is I think, and this is something that could get lost is like, there's a lot going on at us soccer right now too. And I don't know how much of it, you know, I think that's probably a person to person as far as coaching candidates of how much they think that's a factor, but you've got Kate Markgraf is brand new. They've restructured it in such a way that her boss is Ernie Stewart. Um, and that's, that's a brand new setup. Um, how much is Ernie involved in the women's side, which Ernie's a very smart guy as soccer goes, but does not have, a background on the women's side of the game. And then you have, um, even though they've, they've insisted that it's separate, the business from the soccer here, um, you've got a CEO position that needs to be filled, which all the scuttlebutt is like, nobody wants the job because of everything going on at us soccer. So um, I think you've got a lot of these sort of interesting tangential factors that, um, you know, I mean, it's the same thing. Like if you walked into any business and you're like, well, wait a minute, it's a brand new boss that I'd have who has a brand new boss who has a boss that's not named. So I think there's a lot going on there. Yeah. And I think one more, another facet to consider too, is that there are the ongoing legal battles between the mm-hmm. women's team and, and U S soccer. And I think that puts the head coach in a very awkward position of being an employee of U.S. soccer, but also having to be the coach of, of these this team, I think it's it's got to be a hard one to balance, and that's an extra level of of tension, of stress, 
added to this role, even though that doesn't really affect them directly. Um, I think you are kind of walking a balancing act. I think we saw that with Jill of whether, where, wherever your sympathies lie, even if it was with the team, you're still an employee of U.S. soccer and you can't exactly <laughs> be too upfront with what you say, right. I think. Um, so, yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot here, mm-hmm. Jess. So Women's National Team has just won a World Cup, back-to-back World Cups. They also just drew with South Korea. Um, going <laughs> into, like we've talked about, you know, you have less than a year to the Olympics. What do you think the first thing, what do, what do you think, not the first thing, but what do you think this new coach has to um, to do right away? Like hit the ground running. What Where is their focus? Well, I mean, I think honestly, the first thing somebody comes in, right? You've got, we, we've alluded to the strong personalities, um, a lot of star players, uh, obviously, I guess, but but a lot of them as well that are, you know, this team again, second straight World Cup they won, second straight World Cup they were the oldest team at the World Cup. So, um, you know, star players that are in their early to mid 30s, um, higher mid 30s even. So, you, the first thing you've got to do as a coach, I think anybody, is come in, address the locker room, and, and whatever tone that that's going to be specific to that coach. It needs to be set as um, a gentle balance, I think, of, look, I'm in charge now. This is how, you know, this is how we're going to do things. It might not be how Jill did things. It might not be how you did things under Jill. But also, obviously, I respect you all. I respect what you did um, and what you continue to do. And and I think the big message to that, too, is, um, you know, nobody's, you know, a friendly way of saying nobody's job is safe. And I think players, especially on a U.S. team, will generally appreciate that. I think that's kind of goes unspoken anyway, that, you know, there's going to be experimentation. There's going to be some some new players that come in and challenge for spots, and that's healthy anyway. But I think the first thing you really have to do is that initial message to the current group has to be really on point because from there you start bringing in new players who knows? Maybe, I mean, we don't know if the, the coach, if it's the timing here, if it's going to be, you know, that coach is actually on the sidelines for these November games or not, but certainly would be involved, I would think. Um, so, you know, it, it's possible we see a bunch of fresh faces coming in November. Certainly, I think you'd see it at some point after that, if not. But um, as you start doing that, as we saw, even with what we've talked about with Jill Ellis, with some of the player unrest in, in 2017, that's going to have a certain effect on the incumbent players. So um, I think you got to come in and, and be really clear with what you're about to do and why you're about to do it. And obviously the Olympics are really close. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, I do want to say one caveat, I think is just to, to be wary, I think of the, the kind of mistake I think Jill make, which is maybe flipping things up a little bit too much and not giving the team enough time to figure out what it was that she wanted and implement that on the field and kind of develop chemistry because I think all of that was lacking in the last Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that depends again on your on your level of of how much emphasis you put on the Olympics. But I think more more tactically speaking, I think that this new coach has kind of three areas he's got to focus um, their development on, and that is as you as you mentioned the age of the team. I think there's a very real chance that you will only have one forward from this World Cup and the next World Cup, and that's Mallory Pugh, who wasn't even a starter. I think there's a very, very real chance that the rest of them have mm. have left in, in their interim. Um, if not all of, you know, all of those multiple ones, you know. I think a similar thing, I think you have to look at outside back. Um, you know, on the right, you, they play 
uh, Kelly O'Hara, who's has a struggle staying healthy these days, and Allie Krieger, who's not going to be around for the next World Cup. And then mm-hmm. as, as good of a World Cup as Crystal Dunn had, I don't think she's your she's your long-term um, solution at left back. I think that she should be higher up the pitch, and I think she's she's much better at that. And, and then right. that's you get the best out of her in the long in the long run. So I think that's that's the second area they need to focus on. And I think they need to invest in some younger goalkeepers. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying you take them to the Olympics or, or you you play them all the time, but you know. Brianna Scurry and then Hope Solo are the two best U.S. goalkeepers we've ever had, and they were both brought in at a very young age and given the time and opportunity to develop into those f- fantastic goalkeepers. And I don't want to do this sort of rigmarole every four or so years where we scramble to train up a goalkeeper because we've you know neglected one. I think that's that's always been a you know a a, a grumble I guess against the U.S. soccer is and it always seems to work out well because we do produce very good goalkeepers. But I would love to see, you know, like a Casey Murphy or somebody much younger who's not quite ready for it yet, but brought into camp pretty re- regularly, given given game time and given the opportunity to to actually become that success for success for whenever it is that Alyssa Nair decides to move on. So they don't have to, you know, we don't have to shove a bunch of games really quickly down their throat like we did with Nair to get right. ready in a short period of time. So for me, that's that's kind of where I want to see them look. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, I mean, I think all of that's on point. The fullback situation is a, a really important one. And then, you know, I think all of the, the, the subtext to all of that is what we've talked about, too, of how much leeway do, does this coach have? Do they need to win right away and, and still lean on some of the older players? Do they have some, you know, understanding with the Federation that, that there's going to be younger players at the Olympics because they need to be there? Um, and I think, you know, one thing, too, to, to all of this and kind of the elephant in the room that we, we're not, I, we probably want to try to talk about, but don't know much beyond what's been out there is, you know, who this person actually is and, and the two favorites that are left of, um, and, and anybody kind of just jumping in, I think we should probably point out like the favorites list was basically named by Kate Markgraf <laughs> publicly. Um, you know, she, she knew she had the job when she named those, those coaches on ESPN. Um, so, you know, Paul Riley and, and Mark Krikorian are have removed themselves from that. But from that list, which I don't think is the only, I don't think they're the only two left, but that leaves Laura Harvey, Vlako, and Anofsky. And, you know, there's certain elements there too of both of those coaches would come into the job with, um, I mean, there's no other way to put it, I guess, biases toward certain players that they've coached in the league and in multiple teams and that they know about and that maybe even younger players that they want to try. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just a matter of of acknowledging that um, that'll shape that direction of some of these things like a fullback who, you know, who do you try there? Because Jill Ellis went through, I don't know what Chelsea, it's seven, eight, I don't know how many, you know, attempts at finding a, a fullback. <laughs> so, a you know, right. So, I mean, I think, you know, same thing is like if, if it's Ananovsky or Harvey, um, you know, I'm sure they have opinions either of, of players they're coaching right now or players that they see in the league that they say, you know, that's who needs to be in camp. And and the thing, too, I think is I'm curious how much say Kate Markgraf has in that, too. Yeah, that's a really good point and one I consider. But, yeah, if you look at, say, you know, Greg Berhalter with the men's national team, he has called in a lot of his former players and does play them pretty often as Frankly, he's been criticized for it from what I can see. Um, but I think that's natural. I think that you, you get a coach from 
you know, I think if, if they, you know, I'm going to throw out a name that, that I, I had thought of, but doesn't seem to be floating around anymore, which was Steve Swanson. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you bring him up, he's going to play Virginia, you know, he's going to look at Virginia players, probably because they're familiar with them. And, you know, obviously you have to have coach somewhere before the national team. So I think that's kind of something that we need to be aware of, but also it's not something you, you just can't avoid some sort of prior player bias. Right. That's, that's just, it's going to happen. But, you know, as you said, we, we don't know, we've gotten a couple of short lists. Um, I would put money on probably finding out before the end of the year, if I were a betting person, um, for, sooner rather than later but as of this time of recording we don't know um so that's probably all we can say about who that that mysterious person is um so that's kind of it for now and then we'll come back and answer your questions we'll be right back hey everyone jeff kasuf here with some exciting news about the 2020 united soccer coaches convention in baltimore the equalizer will once again be there on podcast row bringing you exclusive podcast interviews with some of the best minds in the game registration is now open for the convention and you can make your plans to join us in baltimore from january 15th to the 19th for networking coaching education and licensing and of course there's the annual nwsl draft which you can come watch as a fan We're at the convention every year, and honestly, it's the one week on the calendar annually where everyone who's anyone in U.S. soccer is truly in the same place at the same time. Register before December 11th for the best rates by going to unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org and stop by Podcast Row to chat with your hosts from The Equalizer. That's unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org for more information. We'll see you in Baltimore. Welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. Um, before we get to your questions, kind of want to give a quick rundown of, of things we haven't talked about yet that happened over the weekend. Um, Washington beat Orlando on Saturday in a, a game that was a makeup from a couple of, of weeks ago when it got rescheduled for the uh, potential hurricane. That means that Orlando is locked into ninth place in the league and will have, unless they traded away in the interim, um, the first draft pick in the 2020 NWSL draft. Don't forget about expansion, Chelsea. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. If, if expansion happens and they decide to give the expansion team the first <laughs> draft pick, because sometimes it happens and sometimes I don't I feel like the, the rules for expansion change every time, but that is oh, a good yeah. point. Unless oh, yeah. they trade it away or an expansion team takes it, which uh, poor Orlando in that case. <laughs> of course, maybe they shouldn't have traded away their own, but that's a story for another time. Um, and then, of course, you know, as we kind of alluded to, talking about about Jill Ellis, the U.S. has played two games against South Korea, and over the last week on Thursday, they defeated them 2-0 with goals by Ali Long and Mallory Pugh, and then on Sunday, fought to a 1-1 draw with the U.S. actually coming from behind to equalize with Carly Lloyd. Now, all three goals were scored, uh, were, were assisted by Megan Rapino because she is just that good. Um, she is the best, as, as some would say. All caps. Yep. All ca- hashtag all caps. Hashtag all caps. All right. So for questions, we have one from, I believe it's pronounced Jamie Frazier. And, and if it's not, I apologize. Uh, remind me, what do the rules say about the definition of involved in the play when it comes to offside? Is there any argument to make that Pew shouldn't have been considered when they rescinded Lloyd's goal? Um, so the FIFA rules... Um, there's a variety of rules about, about talking about offside, but I believe the one she's referring to is interfering with an oppo- opponent, which means preventing an opponent from playing or being able to play the ball, for example, by clearly obstructing the goalkeeper's line of vision or movement, or making a gesture or movement which, in the opinion of the referee, deceives or distracts an opponent 
The opponent must be reasonably close to the play so that the blocking, deceiving, or distracting makes a difference. So even if you don't touch the ball, if you're in an offside position and you somehow are, are proven to have influenced the play, the play can still be called dead for offside. Right, Jeff? Exactly. Exactly how they said it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the the specific play, it's look, it's really tough. I mean, this is what we saw in the summer where um, even with VAR at the World Cup, there is this um, subjective nature to something like this of like what is what is a clear and obvious interference of either a goalkeeper's sight line. I think that one's a little bit easier, but um, interfering in a play where, I mean, this one I think is, is one of those, um, like, I don't think that subjectively that I would have called that um, on, on Mallory Pugh, the way that she is away from, you know, it's, it's a ball being whipped into the back post. She's sort of running toward near post. Um, the defenders, she's behind the defenders, so they don't actually even seem to know she's there or react to her. Um, but, you know, the way that the law is written and laid out, that you could certainly make the argument that, um, I think you can make the argument either way, which is probably the problem. And that's that's what we saw with some things with VAR in the summer. But um, we were talking about this, that there are a couple plays like this in the World Cup, including one for the U.S., um, which I think was in the Sweden game, but but might be a different one um, off the top of my head, um, where the goals stood and there was this sort of passive potential interference. In Australia and Brazil as well, and I think that was a more controversial because it really could have changed the course of that game, that that crazy game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think this is one of the the more subjective calls that the referee has to make. You know, if if the player receiving the ball is offside, that's can come down to a matter of inches, but that's much more cut and dry. I think when you talk about influencing a play, are you drawing the attention of the defender? Are you, you know, if you, if you dummy the ball, does that count? Even if you don't technically touch it, you know, I think that that's, that's probably a hard call to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so good question. And we have another one from Dan Laletta because he just can't handle not being on the podcast, <laughs> Dan. Um, it is actually a very good question as well, and naturally my screen decided to go blank when I read it. So let me see. Do you think tactical evolution of the women's game mirrors that of the men's game? Has that changed in recent years as the women's game has caught up? Curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, Jeff, I'll, I'll throw it open to you first. Well, I think um, I will answer it, but not answer it in a way, I guess. But <laughs> just, to, just to get Dan angry. Um, the No, I think like... For tactics, I, I've talked about this a little bit and been thinking about a lot through the the past couple of months and especially kind of from the World Cup. And, and I think one thing to know, um, I think that's worth noting about tactics is I think to a degree they mirror the men's game to a degree. Um, I don't think that they're exact, but I think more so than anything, like tactics, men or women, they're cyclical. So, you know, I think what's funny is um, this – this sort of three-front high press that the U.S. has come into in this latter stage of Jill Ellis, or you know, the end of Jill Ellis's tenure, um, playing three forwards, pressing high, winning the ball back high, you know, all these things. Like these are staple characteristics of the inaugural World Cup, the U.S. team in '91 that went and won that inaugural World Cup. Um, you know, these are so, and and that's obviously you know, close to 30 years ago at this point. So 
um, I, you know, all of these things, I would say, whether we're talking about like an actual formation and playing a, a three, four, three, or, you know, try, trying a three back, um, trying a three front um, at some point, I'm sure that like, you know, we'll, we'll be covering this long enough that the, you know, like the diamond midfield and, and the traditional four, four, two will be back in vogue. I think it's, it's cyclical more than anything. I personally love a good diamond midfield. But I, I'm waiting for Paul. <laughs> They're Riley's still out box. there, yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting for Paul Riley's box midfield to really take off. You don't see that very often, and mm-hmm. it requires certain personnel to make it effective. But I'm kind of surprised that since he's had so much success with it, that it it hasn't. Because I think that's what happens with tactics, right? Like you said, you made a very good point that they are cyclical. I mean, we're not reinventing the wheel here, you know. And I, I think that when Chelsea had a really good run with the three back, that kind of came back in vogue. And so you see, and, and any coach who's, you know, they're going to pay attention to those trends, women or men, if they see something being successful and they think they can, they have the personnel to make that work, you know, um, that works. So I, I think to answer Dan's question a little bit, do I think it mirrors that? Yeah, I think they kind of tend to go a little bit hand in hand somewhat, just because that's, that's the nature of the sport. Coaching education is the same. Everyone watches a lot of the same games on TV. Um, and I think that the women's game actually benefits a little from the men's and that they, even though women's soccer was suppressed for so long, and that's a very negative thing, we didn't have to go through like the old WM formations and things like mm. that. And some of the very, very old soccer that was played way back in the day kind of were able to skip that. Um, but I think that there are probably, I think, I would say two, two, ta- two trends over maybe like the last 10 years that I think are reflected in, in both the women's and the men. I think that's the the goalkeeper as a, as a playmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you, you think of like Manuel Neuer really is, is probably being a really good example of, of that, even though he's kind of fading a little bit recently. And then the very, um, very aggressive attacking fullbacks as, mm-hmm. as being more, much more offensive than, than they used to, you know, kind of just hang around in, in the latter half of the field. And that's, I think Jill Ellis has really been one who's just kind of pushed that uh, beyond as far as the women's game go, then there may be some, and now it's kind of just the, the du jour. You always, you hear that about, you know, you used to be, if, if a fullback was very attacking, they'd be called an attack minded fullback. And now that's just kind of to be expected. And they're, it's more notable that if they're not, you know, right. we're talking about, you know, Allie Krieger or Casey Short are players who tend to stay home a little bit more. And that's kind of, that's what you point out because that becomes the exception rather than the rule. But yeah, I, I think that that they they tend to sort of go hand in hand, more or less. Um, I think the difference is that there are more men's teams and they get a lot more exposure, which is going to help spread whatever whatever tactical changes or or innovations have been made. So maybe the men's game has an advantage there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I mean I think those are both great points about you know things that we've seen sort of become the norm, um, and it makes me think of like the uh, the almost cliche phrase of like playing out of the back, which is like it's, I think you ask like uh, I know a lot of people have pet peeves about this, and it's like well how, you ask like I mean we might ask we're probably going to ask the new coach this right on like the the new U.S. coach on the the first time that he or she is is available to press like what is your vision for this team how do you want to play and i mean hopefully there's a better answer than this and i think from the candidates if one of them gets it that there would be but like a lot of coaches do like the 
well, we want to play beautiful soccer. We want to play out of the back. <laughs> it's like uh, possession-based soccer. Possession, yes, possession. Yeah. Yes, which are like, you know, look, we've heard that from places. We hear it all the time. We heard it in Washington at the beginning of the year, and I think they actually did it. We heard it in Orlando beginning of the year. I don't know that they did any of that. Um, so, you know, we'll see. That that's I think that's you know to the goalkeeper point that you made and everything. I think. Um, that's kind of become the, the standard on, on both fronts too. And I would say my pet peeve being that people try to do it even when it is clearly not advisable because they just need to play out of pressure. See Portland Thorns recently. Oh, good point. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I would say maybe the coach gets married to a style that maybe they don't have the personnel for. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to to be a little bit more adaptable, to, particularly more of a, for a club coach than a national team coach, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, I think that is it for um, episode 79 of the Equalizer podcast. Uh, thanks, Jeff, for coming on. Hope to have you around a little bit more regularly, maybe in the future. <laughs> yeah. And thanks to everyone uh, for listening.